What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have Dr. Silverstein. He gets into a lot of research about blind people and how if you're born blind, you most likely will never get schizophrenia. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. We can break down some, some pretty interesting concepts there. Um, but first, I just want to let you know I'm having a contest right now. Go on my, my Facebook page or Instagram, and if you want 100 bucks worth in free pizza, that's like five huge gourmet pizzas at Palio's Pizza Cafe. They are awesome. You guys got to check them out. You get, enter this contest. It's just with a like, a click, and a share, and uh, we'll get you, get you in there. Alrighty. Dr. Silverstein, PhD, is the George L. Engel Professor of Psychosocial Medicine, Associate Chair for Research, which is at the Department of Psychiatry. Professor of Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Ophthalmology, and member of Center for Visual Science at the University of Rochester Medical Center in New York. Guys, this conversation was amazing. I learned so much. You guys have to check this out. A lot of stuff that I just had no idea, and he's really fun to talk to. Um, You know me, I like neuroscience. I like anything to do with the brain. Uh, Mental health is up my alley, and so he talks all about this. So check it out. I had a wonderful conversation. I hope you guys enjoy all right we are recording dr silverstein thank you so much for coming on the show well i'm glad to be here and i appreciate you inviting me and looking forward to talking so before we get into much of your research because you've you've posted hundreds of articles in multiple journals um you have a profession in research as well before we get into some of those topics tell me a little about about your degree, why you got into that degree field, um, as well as what you currently do. All right. Well, um, by training, I'm a clinical psychologist. So uh, after college, I got a master's and then a PhD in, in psychology with a specialization in clinical psych, which is the part that works with people with um, mental health issues. So you get trained to be a therapist and just to do research on mental health issues, the causes and treatments of mental health issues. Um, I got my PhD in 1989, actually from State University of New York at Buffalo. Okay. And you're, you're in New York right now, right? I'm in Rochester, New York. Okay. Yeah. The okay. Western, Northwestern end of New York state. Just out of curiosity, how cold is it there right now? Today was supposed to be a high of 23. Hey, same here. <laughs> a couple of days ago when I had to go out at six in the morning and shovel my front walkway, it was seven degrees. Seven. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what we're experiencing right now with like negative 15 wind chills and stuff. Oh, it's terrible. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Yeah. So I have a, a PhD in clinical psychology that I got, I guess, 32 years ago. And um, I right now work at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York, in their psychiatry department. I also have appointments in ophthalmology and neuroscience, which is kind of because of where my research is. I love neuroscience. Yeah, it's really a a tremendously exciting and growing field. Um, So I've been here about a year. I was at Rutgers for about 14 years in New Jersey until uh, the very, very end of 2019. And um, yeah, most of my career, I've been, uh, I've done a lot of clinical work, uh, especially in inpatient 
work treating people on short-term inpatient units or long-term units. I've run some units um, in state hospital settings in collaboration with universities. Um, and typically those were units for people who were at state psychiatric hospitals for years, which still occurs, you know, people mm -hmm. with schizophrenia are admitted, or maybe it's like their 10th hospital admission. They're not really getting any better. They could stay for years. So, uh, but there are some uh, very good treatments that can help people get out of the hospital faster and stay out of the hospital, but they're not found in many places. Um, but I set up and ran some units like that. Um, for many years and trained many people and did some research on some of these interventions for this population, the very hard to treat psychotic disorder population. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of research on the visual system and what goes wrong with the visual system in people with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. And most recently, I've been doing a lot of work looking at the retina in the back of the eye, which is most people don't realize it's part of the central nervous system. It grows out of the same tissue as the brain uh, in, you know, like for the embryo and very hmm. early development. Really? So you can, you can learn a lot about what's happening in the brain, <clears throat> in the eye. And it's a pretty well-developed field in, uh, in neurology, neuro-ophthalmology, where you can see bad things about Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, MS. Ooh. Even normal aging, you can predict a lot of changes that are going to happen from from changes in the retina, because what's, if something's happening in the retina, pretty much it's happening in the brain as well. But it's only in the last few years that people start to look at this with psychiatric disorders. Like a few years is in five or 20? Um, well, to give you an idea, there are, as of a few weeks ago, when we looked this up, there were 60 papers on a technique called electroretinography which is a way of recording electrical activity of the cells in the retina. So how, how good the functioning is of the cells in your eye that respond to light and, and kind of start to form the first mm. visual images, the early visual images in your brain. And um, of those 60, 20 of them were in the last year. Oh my gosh. And nearly all of them you could say were in the last five years and all within the last 10 years, partly because it's gotten a lot, less invasive to do it. Hmm. You used to have to put a contact lens on someone's eye with little wires coming out of it and then like oh, shine wow. light in their eye. And, you know, that means you had to anesthetize their eye and dilate their pupil. And mm -hmm. who's going to volunteer for, you know, that. <laughs> um, but now you can do it either putting a very thin fiber, right. Kind of at the top of your lower eyelid. So it feels for a minute, like you have a hair in your eye, but like there's not actually something sitting on your eye Oof. or you can use a skin electrode, like a little bandaid that goes kind of under your lower eyelid. So it just feel, you don't even feel that. Yeah. But it's so, something in there that can pick up the electrical signals coming from your eye. So you said a lot. Um, that's a perfect segue into your passions. Cause like, I, I can already tell this is something that you love to do. Cause you just keep going. I love that. Um, so I kind of forgot the question. So I just, kept talking. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I love that. Uh, so I found you as I was going through some research articles on frontier journal. Um, you had a article on how basically schizophrenia has, there's a relationship between schizophrenia and eyesight. That's a very, that's a broad concept right now. And you kind of went into some details there just a second ago, but talk to me 
first what schizophrenia is. Um, most people just think that it's just a crazy person, you know, running around, voices talking to him. But there's a, there's some pretty interesting components to, to schizophrenia, um, even how acute stress and psychosis affect the like hippocampus. Right, hippocampus is is a pretty uh, huge topic in schizophrenia. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's a lot as well. So go ahead and, and zoom out. Tell me about schizophrenia and then tell me about the relationship to eyesight. Okay. So schizophrenia, um, it's a very serious psychiatric disorder. The latest estimates are that it occurs in about 0.7% of the population. So about seven out of a thousand people, maybe, you know, will get it. Um, it's not the same as multiple personality disorder, which mm-hmm. a lot of people you know, often get that mixed up. Uh, so the split mind, which essentially is what schizo, meaning like schism or split mm-hmm. and phrenia, freen, like mind, it's not referring to multiple personalities. It more means like a disconnection of ideas and emotions and ideas. So the normal taken for grantedness of like, you think something and then you feel the right thing, you know? Yeah. It's like uh, things just kind of uh, get disconnected. So the main symptoms that are used to diagnose schizophrenia are, like you said, uh, usually hearing voices or some type of auditory hallucination. Some people have visual hallucinations with schizophrenia, but many more, about 80% will have auditory hallucinations. Um, many patients have what's called uh, disorganized symptoms or disorganized speech mainly, which is really where they're talking to you and they seem to understand themselves what they're saying, but you can't really understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. It's like they keep shifting the topic, uh, even yeah. within a sentence. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's a problem. Uh, many people have what in psychiatry is called negative symptoms. Now you might think, what a ridiculous name. Aren't all symptoms negative? Who wants to have a (laughs) symptom, right? Negative though means in this case, something that normally should be present in your experience is not there. It's missing. It should be called really a missing symptom. So what does that mean? It means, for example, normally if you're hungry and someone puts like a big delicious plate of food in front of you, you'll be really excited to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> or says if they say, you know, in an hour, you know, what do you think about going out for a steak dinner or whatever? But many people with schizophrenia lose that sense of kind of anticipating that, that something's going to be pleasurable to them. Hmm. Sometimes called anhedonia. You know, we've all heard of like uh, hedonism, that mm-hmm. these resorts you can go to. And, <laughs> but the opposite of that is anhedonia or like a lack of hedonic capacity. And it's it's like nothing interests you. You don't want to do anything. So what do you do? You stay in bed all day or you watch TV all day. or um, But that might mean you, you stop seeing your friends. You stop doing your hobbies. You're kind of like... Uh, vegetate. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times what happens with people with schizophrenia and why they get into such hostile interactions with family members is because there's a sense that they don't do anything anymore. We, we just got to give them a kick in the pants or something. Hmm. So it's almost like they're a shell of their former self. Mm-hmm. So you'd see what's called positive symptoms where something's added on, like hearing voices or very paranoid or delusional ideas, right? The person like thinks they're Jesus or they're, you know, that um, some beings on Mars control their thoughts and that type of thing. 
And then you have these negative symptoms where they're not interested in things, uh, food or socialization. Um, those are probably the main symptoms, but they have to be occurring enough of the time and for several months that the person's functioning becomes worse. Hmm. I say that because, you know, if you add up all the people in our world who every now and then, or at least once as adults have heard a voice where there clearly was nobody saying it or saw a vision or smelled something that wasn't there. You're talking at least about 15% of the population. That's the the percent that admits it. Mm. It might even be (laughs) higher, right? Um, So that's not schizophrenia. If you see a vision, especially if it like you're falling asleep or you're waking up, Mm because sometimes you're still kind of in a dream state. Um, But if it gets worse and it's, there's multiple symptoms and it's interfering with your functioning. And then, and especially when you become a danger, you can't take care of yourself or you're getting very aggressive because you think people are out to get you. Um, That's basically, and I should say, and you rule out other causes of it. Like someone's been taking ketamine every day. Yeah. (laughs) They have a brain tumor. I mean, there's, there's things that can cause psychotic symptoms that aren't schizophrenia. So you rule those out and then you have this very serious condition. Okay. So now what is the relationship to that and eyesight? Cause a lot of people, like I, I was, I had no idea that eyesight had a direct connection to schizophrenia. Most people think schizophrenia is just, Oh, it's just a crazy person. Um, there was, what was that movie about schizophrenia? Um, Beautiful mind. Beautiful mind. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's a great picture of what it's like to live with schizophrenia. Um, but eyesight, tell me about that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of work happening in this area now. And I guess if I had to summarize it in one sentence, I would say um, the data seem to indicate that if you are born blind, so you have no visual input ever, um, especially if it's because something in your brain, like there's a lesion in your, the part of your brain that processes vision. Um, If you're born blind or if you have really, really good vision, you know, like 2010 vision, (laughs) then you seem to be at very, very low risk for schizophrenia. In fact, the data indicate if you're born blind due to a cortical problem, brain reason, you may not have any chance of getting schizophrenia. Um, whereas if you have bad vision, then you're at an increased risk for schizophrenia. And we can talk about why that is, but that's the gist of it. It seems like if you're born completely blind, don't get schizophrenia, or if you have great vision, but people like kids who have, uh, kind of really need big prescriptions for glasses. And sometimes their vision can't even be corrected all the way with the, with glasses. They're at increased risk. Wow. Okay. So let's break this down a little bit. Um, blind people, they're not getting schizophrenia. Is that because of outside factors or is it because of the connection between the eyes and the brain? Yeah, I know it's a terrible answer to give in an interview, but the the real answer is nobody knows. Okay. There are some good theories and I'm happy to talk about them. Uh, But at this point, I would say we don't, you know, like we don't know to the extent that like we know what causes Mm COVID-19, right? We don't know 
really why being born completely blind will protect you from having schizophrenia. But there are some good ideas that are being looked at. Um, yeah, I'm not. Lo- I'm not asking you to like go, you know, all out and say this is the reason why. I am curious about the hypotheses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, there's a few of them. One is, and this is the one I think in the article you mentioned that I wrote that you read. What I was saying was. You know, if you're born blind or you become blind, let's say in the first year, year and a half of life, not at 10 years old, but very, very early on, your brain can really change around what's called neuroplasticity. I love neuroplasticity. I've talked to so much about it with another guy. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) And so what happens is um, the other that the part of your brain that would normally be used for vision the occipital lobe, as it's technically called on the very back of your head, that gets taken over by the parts of your brain that process, you know, hearing, for example, Hmm. right? Nearby brain regions get bigger. They take over that space. It's like, no one's using the space. Let's move in and, uh, and, you know, live here ourselves. Um, And so what happens is you get um, kind of a, improved or increased or better than normal, I would say, uh, functioning in a number of areas related mm. to touch, hearing, smell. Yeah. Yeah. Smells a little different because that's like way in the front of the brain and it's such an old okay. system. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's what, but that's what you're saying is why we see people who, um, so even if they're deaf, if they're deaf, they're able to do other things more because it's like you're saying it, it it's taken over that area of the brain. And so those skills are enhanced. And that's what we're seeing with blind people as well. Right. But especially if the blindness is there right from birth or starts or it comes on in the first year or so. Okay. So the amount that these other areas of the brain take over the visual regions is much less after like the first two, three, four years. Okay. And it's the most in the first year or so. Um, although there's still some debate about that, but that's that's my view of what's happening. My read of the literature. Yeah, your uh, um, neuroplasticity officially hardens at uh, 26. Am I right? You know, it it definitely there's definitely ways that the brain can change less and less as you get older, mm-hmm. but it can still change. And that's one of the things in the last 20 years that's been amazing to people that you can change the brain, even in an adult brain. Yeah. Now you can't change it the way you would change it in a one-year-old. And that's because you have less of new experiences. So like, as you get older, each new experience creates a new neural pathway kind of embedding itself inside your brain. And then the older you get, the less new experiences you have, which increases your chance of neural rigidity. Is that kind of a, this synopsis or am I wrong, completely off? Well, I would say, unfortunately, as you get older, yes, there are fewer new experiences that happen, unfortunately. <laughs> and there is does seem to be a reduced capacity to um, to form new connections, but I don't think they're related. I think they're separate. And I guess the thing I would want to leave your listeners with is it's surprising to a lot of scientists how much plasticity there still is in a, in a fully grown adult. 
Okay. Even in an older person, you know, so that's why now there are, you've probably seen on TV. Um, I haven't seen it lately, but I, for, for a while, like every day I was seeing the same commercial for Lumosity. Remember that? Yeah. And they, it would be like this cartoon. They would draw like a pair of black glasses on someone and mm-hmm. like to show that they're smarter. And then they would say like, I'm, I'm very satisfied with my brain. <laughs> well, you know, some of those claims were exaggerated, but the true part was, you know, you could be 50 years old. And if you are doing a lot of practicing of memory exercises or attention, you can improve your ability to do these things. You can improve your vision. Mm-hmm. You know, there are visual training programs out now for people that there people describe them as it's like having glasses inside your brain. Hmm. Now, does that mean they put glass in your brain? No. What it means is there's no way to improve your eyes or to correct through artificial lenses, like with glasses, the the signal on your retina. But what you can do is you make the brain more sensitive to what comes in from the retina. So even though your eyesight, your eyes are not working that well, your brain can get better at learning to discriminate between the fuzzy pictures that are coming in, if you know what I mean. Um, So there's a lot of plasticity that can happen. And so it does seem that if you're born blind, the brain is changing in ways that seem to be the opposite of what of how your brain changes when you develop schizophrenia. In other words, if you look at all the skills that people born blind have that are better than healthy, normal sighted people, mm-hmm. in many ways, they're the opposite of the things that people with schizophrenia do less well than your average person. Hmm. So people with schizophrenia, for example, they're not so good at paying attention to sound, uh, they have short attention span. Yeah. People who are born blind, they develop very, very good attention spans for auditory, for sound information, because that's the main way of getting information. Yeah. Right. Um, And there are many examples like that when it comes to attention, when it comes to memory, when it comes to touch, of course, touch is another way that blind people explore the world. Um, so they get like super sensitive to small, you know, changes m- much more than people who can see are. <laughs> so one theory is that essentially there are changes to the brain only in people born blind or become blind very, very early in life that create a brain that basically is better in many ways that are affected by schizophrenia. And so even if you would have some genes related to schizophrenia and start to do worse in some areas, you're still not going to get to the level of impairment that's associated with schizophrenia. Mm. Okay. So it sounds like what you're saying is whenever people are born blind, the areas of the brain that would typically be used for vision and also be used um, that are more sensitive to schizophrenia are being taken over and mutated in a way that hinders their ability to get schizophrenia. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's basically what I'm saying. Um, You know, I should say schizophrenia involves many, many parts of the brain. 
You mentioned the hippocampus before, the prefrontal, the frontal lobes, for example, very... Is it CA1 or CA2 or something like that? Well, those are regions of the hippocampus, yeah. right. So those get affected and memory is a big, big problem in schizophrenia and the hippocampus is involved in memory. It's right under the temporal lobe, which is kind of that whole complex yeah. is involved in memory. Um, so there are many regions of the brain that are affected by schizophrenia. And I don't want to you know, make the claim that schizophrenia is caused by a problem in the occipital lobe. Yeah. But it does seem that when the occipital lobe is largely taken over by other senses, you, you develop a, a certain kind of brain that does seem less sensitive to, um, let's put it this way, it's, it's not going to develop the same problems that start to develop in people who develop schizophrenia. Hmm. Man, that's so intense. That's so cool. Um, is it outside? Like, is it colors? Like, as I'm looking at, you know, my room around here, um, is it the things that the information that's coming into my occipital lobe that's causing uh, the change in schizophrenia? Or is it something inside my brain between, you know, your eyeballs and your occipital lobe, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, one, one, another theory that relates to your question is that it's not the colors per se or the shapes of things, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. that the, the reason why kind of poor vision, below average or poor vision is related to an increase in schizophrenia is because you got to think of the brain like the brain is not like a camera lens that just like records what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. The brain's trying to figure out what's happening in the world. And so um, when visual signals are coming in that are a little bit maybe blurry or not getting processed correctly in some ways, then different ideas can get activated by those visual signals, maybe that are not the best fit for what those signals really are. Some people call the brain a prediction machine, right? This is how we get through life. Signals come in, we try to anticipate, well, what's going on out there in the world? Mm -hmm. And ideally we're always right, even though we never are always <laughs> right. Um, but the thinking is the more degraded or delayed or somehow problematic the visual information is, because so much more of the brain is dedicated to vision than any other sense. Hmm. I don't know that. Right? I mean, people say, and neuroscientists will say about, like monkeys, about 50% of the brain is involved in processing visual information. Hmm. In humans, it's say maybe 30%, sometimes a little bit higher, the estimate is, but let's say around 30%. So much more of the brain's devoted to vision than let's say hearing or smell. So if the visual information is not so good, what's likely to happen is there could be a mismatch between the visual information coming in and then either the identification of what it is or the sense of what's the meaning of this to me? What does it mean? And, and how do I react to it? Hmm. Okay. See what I mean? Yeah. Now, interestingly, there's this finding that happens in people who lose their vision as adults. Um, there's something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. I've heard that. I just don't remember what it was. Yeah. So 
it's it's pretty common in people, let's say adults who lose their vision. Um, I know one person who, for example, had totally normal vision and then had a surgery, not on his eye, like some, like his knee or something like that. But the anesthesia dose wasn't the right dose. And it led to all this like neuron death. And he woke up totally blind. Oh, wow. It been blind since, since then. Um, So people like that, or who have certain retinal diseases can get this. So Charles Bonnet syndrome is um, you're an otherwise healthy person. You don't have any psychiatric disorder necessarily, but yet you start to have visions, visual hallucinations. And very often they're really strange. For example, the, a typical one that many people have is you're seeing little, like a bunch of little people walking around kind of dressed like they're at a Renaissance fair or something like that. Like really colorful, old fashioned clothes, pointy hats. Um, doesn't have to be that. That's just a, a surprisingly common one that people, and people think that actually could be the basis of a lot of people saying uh, they see fairies or things like yeah. that. Well, um, a lot of people do that with like uh, psychedelics. When you take an LSD or DMT was a big one. Um, a lot of people think that that's uh, an entire kind of uh, lens into another realm that we're not supposed to see. And people who do take some psychedelics do develop uh, schizophrenia and acute psychosis because of that. So do you know much about that? Yeah. So this is all tied together, interestingly. Uh, I'm fascinated. <laughs> including the interesting fact that it seems from some case studies that if you're born blind and take LSD, you're not going to have a visual hallucination. What? So, yeah. And here's the thinking. So like Charles Bernays said, when the idea is there's no more input coming in from your eyes, but there, but you still have neurons in your visual system in your brain. And they can fire spontaneously, right, uh-huh. on their own, but not because something's hitting your eye and coming into your brain. It's more just like an internal activity that's happening. But your brain has to interpret it because that's what brains do. If something's happening in one part of the brain, the other parts of the brain will will say, oh, like something's coming in because the visual system neurons are yeah. active. Well, hey, we finally get a job. <laughs> Right. There's something for us to do. And then um, the visual system will try to predict based on what those spontaneous signals are. What's the most likely thing in that from our past experience out in the world that could be causing that pattern of activity in the visual system? And so it might it it creates uh, in your consciousness some imagery. Mm. Right. Mm. And. Um, and what seems to be happening with LSD and some of these uh, psilocybin, some of these other psychedelics yeah. is a similar thing. You're creating activity in your sensory systems, visual system being the one that's the most used right in the brain. Mm-hmm. And now your brain's trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. It's like, imagine you're in a work in a fire station and an alarm goes off. Not because someone pulled a fire alarm in some building a mile away, just because it goes off on its own all of a sudden. Well, what's going to happen in that fire state? They're going to assume there's a fire somewhere. They're going to get ready to go out and put that fire out, right? So that's what's happening. Um, And your brain does the best it can to try to figure out what's happening. Um, Hmm. But often it's completely nonsensical. 
So it sounds like there's main, like as we zoom back out, there's three kind of main steps to what you're talking about. Step one is signals that we see, you know, out in the real world. It's colors, light that are that step one that's coming into our system, right? right? Step two, it's that it's our system trying to interpret what those signals are. And then step three is those signals have a conclusion. They have a conclusive purpose. Um, they know, like what you said, that the interpretation of those signals is, okay, this is a red color. Okay, the interpretation of these signals is uh, a feeling or a touch. And then it logs it, and that's what we are able to make decisions off of. That's step three. It sounds like uh, the visual aspect of what you're talking about is not step one where the signal's coming in. It's the uh, faulty step two where signals don't know where to go signals are being misidentified and sent to the wrong zone. Is that kind of sound right? Yeah, sort of. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Not that so much they're sent to the wrong place, but that there's noisy activity. So in a person with schizophrenia, say, the idea is that the, in the visual part of the brain, the signals are too noisy. Okay. Right? So maybe, like, if you look at a straight vertical line, that you could tell that line is completely straight. Yeah. But in people with schizophrenia, often they look at something like that and it could look totally straight or it could look slightly to the left or slightly to the right. It's as if they're not good as good at telling, uh, discriminating the exact orientation. And they're not as good at depth perception. And, and there's problems sometimes in color perception. And something might look like it's moving when it isn't. So there are a lot of ways that the it's almost like every visual signal coming in could be more things than it would be to let's say someone like you or me. Hmm. So the brain can interpret it as in a wider range of possibilities. And sometimes those possibilities are way off. Hmm. And if you grow up like that and your brain and all your ideas and sense of self and everything and how you see the world is formed with in that kind of context, then, you know, often your ideas are maybe a little bit off based on the, what the visual signals are. This could happen with hearing too in schizophrenia. The auditory processing isn't as good either. So it's as if there's less correspondence between the best way to think and most realistic way to think of something and what's actually happening out in the world. And that can lead to a lot of kind of uncertainty, anxiety, ideas about how things work in the world. That's really, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of information to even handle, to even understand. You know, I would say this could be helpful. Okay. You know, one way to think about mental illness, even serious mental illness, is mm-hmm. nothing happens that doesn't also happen in other people some of the time. So if you want to have the experience where you um, are seeing something that's not exactly what's there, you know, there are all these great visual illusions. You can look them up online. Yeah. Right. So one that's a really great one is the hollow mask illusion. I don't know if you've heard of that. You should check this out. So, but just to describe it briefly, um, it down. It's called the hollow mask illusion. Yeah. You'll find it in two seconds once you look it up. Okay. So, you know, imagine it's Halloween, right? Everyone's putting a mask up. Uh-huh. Now, if you were to take that mask off, 
you know, like you'd buy it at a store. You'd see one side's like sticks out and it's painted and it looks like whatever, you know, Richard Nixon or Donald Trump or whoever, you know, Superman. Um, and the other sides, the inside of it or the hollow side, let's say, is it's not painted. Right. So it's just like white. Yeah. But imagine you were to paint both sides. Right. Now, you say the a typical person, OK, imagine I paint both sides. Do you think you could tell the difference between which is the side that sticks out and which is the side that kind of goes in? Hmm. 100% of the people say no problem, really easy. OK, now you hang that mask on a wall like seven feet away from a person. And let's say you're hanging it so that they're actually looking into the, the hollow side. Right. You know what I mean? And that will look like it's the other side. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, why is that? It's because you're, from all your experience, your brain says to you, faces in the world stick out. They don't go in. So even though the signals coming into your eyes say one thing, your brain says, oh, no, it overrides it. Hmm. Another good illusion is the, uh, the moon illusion, right? You know, everyone, sometimes you see a moon like down near the horizon. It looks like oh, five yeah. times bigger than, it, you know, but the moon's the same size. Uh -huh. It's just because if it's you, compared to like the trees. Yeah. If you look at it through like a paper towel tube, you can see. But the thing is, because we human beings have like this innate sense of the sky, like whatever's, let's put it this way, like straight above us is closer than like if it was a dome, then the part straight above us is closer than the edges off to the side. Hmm. So, so our brain adjusts the size of something that's lower down, like at the edge of the dome to make it seem bigger than it really okay. is. But our so brain's fooling us. So, so taking this back to schizophrenia, that's where the, the missing link is. People with schizophrenia are getting all this information in and it's not organized. It's just it has no point of reference. And that's where a lot of the signals are just getting skewed. And the result is seeing things and hearing things. Right. Because okay. ultimately your brain has to make sense of what's happening out there. Okay. Right. It doesn't have the luxury of saying, oh, we're going to turn off your brain for a few minutes. Just stand there and do nothing until we figure out what's happening. Yeah. That's not how it works. You, there always has to be a sense of what's happening. So your brain's always making the best prediction. But, you know, there's an idea that like auditory and visual hallucination of people with schizophrenia are really the best guess as to what's happening based on the person's prior experience. So especially if you've been traumatized and you've been bullied and you've been ostracized or whatever, um, and you just assume the world is a hostile, you know, angry place, and you can't really decipher completely clearly what the auditory signals are that are coming in, mm -hmm. you know, then maybe your brain will just create this voice sounds, or that's how you interpret the kind of ambiguous signals that you're hearing. Whereas if you heard them with a normally functioning auditory system, you would know what it is. It's almost like the neurons there are trying to figure out what to do. And because they're so bored, they're just screaming and making up pictures. <laughs> Does that sound about right? Yeah. 
Okay. And that's how consciousness works. Huh. I mean, well, like 150 years ago, people, you could show that, for example, if you hypnotize somebody and said to them, okay, you know, I'm going to count to 10 and you're going to be back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I snap my fingers uh, in a few minutes, you're going to go over and open the window. Okay. So then you, you take them out of hypnosis few minutes later, you're talking, you snap your fingers, they go over and open the window. And then you say to them, well, why did you open the window? And they'll always say something like, oh, it's kind of hot in here. Hmm. But of course, because they don't remember, you gave them the hypnotic suggestion that they're not going to remember anything. Uh, so they did the behavior, but there has to be an explanation. And that's the thing. If you're here having ambiguous input some sensory input your brain will always try to figure out what that is okay so which doesn't mean that sometimes you might just say like if you put on a tv between remember the old days with tv channels uh-huh. you put it in between and there'd be like white noise yeah yeah that doesn't mean that okay you turn the white noise on and you think you're watching you know the flintstones okay um but it is true that people who have schizophrenia and even people thought to be at risk for schizophrenia, because maybe they have one symptom or something like that, mm-hmm. they are much more likely than other people to, let's say, hear noise through headphones and say that they're hearing voices or seeing a face or something like that. Okay. So there's like this excess of um, deriving meaning, especially social or personal meaning, in in stim in stimuli that are kind of uh, noisy. Huh. So there's a seems to be a huge age factor with all this. You know, uh, younger if you're blind, uh, born blind, your likelihood of getting schizophrenia is next to nothing. But what if if you're down the line and you're 15 years old and then become blind because you've had 15 years of developing a worldview? Are your chances of getting schizophrenia the same or different? Yeah, it seems to be that it's the same as anybody else. Okay. Now, this is a whole other interesting literature, but in a nutshell, it does seem like if you become, if you learn how to live with vision and then you become blind later on, let's say as a teenager, adult, or even a very old adult, like if you have macular degeneration or, Mm -hmm. you know, a disease like that, then there's a really, the increased risk is for things like depression or an anxiety disorder. Okay. Just because it it becomes, you have to relearn so many things and people treat you at first like you can't do anything and they're afraid for you to try to do something because they think you'll burn the house down. So there's a lot of literature about that now and how to work with families and the people themselves to prevent them from getting depressed. But it doesn't seem to increase the risk for psychosis. Okay. Um, Where oddly, you know, something like deafness, that does seem to increase the risk of psychosis is it because you're you think you're hearing things but you know you're not so those same neurons who have had a purpose their entire life um are trying to figure out what to do so they again create something that's not there um or am i off (laughs) no you're not I, i i would say i don't think it's that well known so on the one hand it's very common. A lot of people have relatives where they've seen this happen is, you know, your aunt Joan, she's 75, 80 years old, mm-hmm. starts to lose her hearing. Now, all of a sudden, she's like really paranoid. Mm-hmm. Right. You see that a lot in older people losing their hearing. Um, 
it's not clear if that's the same thing as like when a 20 year old who goes deaf and then develops schizophrenia later, uh, if that's the same. But it, I guess the thing to say is um, if you're at risk for schizophrenia by virtue of any number of risk factors, then certainly having an increase in stress can make it more likely that you will develop it than if you didn't have that stress. And certainly losing hearing is something that um, seems to just be extremely stressful. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's less or more stressful than being blind, but there does seem to be this statistical association between early or later or later deafness and increase of schizophrenia, whereas for blindness, really, it doesn't seem to increase it. It seems to decrease it if it's happening like near birth. Yeah or it doesn't seem to affect the rate. That's really interesting. So what you mentioned a couple of times about stress and how there's a pretty interesting relationship between stress and schizophrenia, as well as acute, acute psychosis. Um, we know that uh, acute stressful events increases your chances of getting schizophrenia or having a, a psychotic breakdown. Why? That you know, why does that occur? Yeah. Um, as best you can. Yeah. So I should say first, there's a big question there of whether stress will make people that whether what's happening is it's only moving people towards a psychotic episode if they're already prone to it. Mm. That's what probably it is. Right. Because more otherwise to, more prone to the psychotic episode or more prone to like schizophrenia. Or both? Well, both, really. Okay, okay. So, because there are other psychiatric disorders that ha can have, often don't, but can have psychotic symptoms, including major depression with psychotic features, yeah. or yeah, bipolar disorder can have psychotic features. Mm -hmm. um, and in those cases as well, you know, a, a, a period of stress can really cause a relapse or increase the risk of a relapse. Okay. Um so you're but saying environmental factors are were kind of already the loaded gun. Environmental factors and maybe even hereditary epigenetic factors were the loaded gun, and then the uh, acute stressful event was the trigger that finally set it off. I guess I would say – let me just change that a little bit maybe. Okay. Is that, uh, just one way to think of it is that different people have different vulnerabilities. Uh -huh. So some people under stress get eczema. Some people get irritable bowel syndrome. Some people get depressed. And then other people have a vulnerability for a certain type of dysregulation in the brain that is what psychosis is. They start hearing voices and, and having delusional ideas. So now it's not easy always to identify who those people are before it happens. Mm -hmm. But the thinking generally is, is that if you're vulnerable to developing a psychotic condition, let's say schizophrenia or, you know, depression with psychosis, then stress, a period of stress is going to increase the risk for having an acute episode of it. Hmm. I want to make that clear because I mean, you can have schizophrenia, you can have that diagnosis and you can have no symptoms, right? You get the diagnosis because you've had symptoms. You've maybe been in the hospital a few times. There's been periods when you heard voices for, you know, weeks on end, or maybe, thought you were the Messiah or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but let's say you've been treated and, you know, you're, you have a stable life. 
there might be a point where you are, you know, not having symptoms or you're having such a low level of them that no one could ever tell by looking at you that you've ever had this diagnosis. Mm. Right. So it's, it's like MS, right. Multiple sclerosis. Mm. You have these flare ups, these acute episodes. And then there are other times when you might not be having these problems. Mm. Now, many people with schizophrenia do have continuous symptoms at a low level, but not everybody does. Now, can people who have MS uh, or vice versa, people who have schizophrenia, can they develop the MS or schizophrenia because are they related at all? Because they kind of affect similar systems. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think having one increases the chances of having the other one. At least I haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, it is true that, uh, and by the way, the... It, it, traditionally, the causes of those two disorders were thought to be very, very different. Mm-hmm. Now it turns out that both of them might be might involve uh, neuroinflammation. Yeah. And what happens with neuroinflammation is th- there's like this big release of um, what's called microglia, and other yeah. things happen in the brain where the brain's or the body is acting as if there's things in the brain that are like uh, invasive organisms. Mm-hmm. And uh, like bacteria that shouldn't be there. And then it goes out and kills them. But what happens is it gets out of control and you start, um, essentially your brain's immune system starts eating away at the healthy brain cells. Wow, that's interesting. Right. And so you lose neurons. In the case of MS, you're losing the, the, the myelination or the, the white matter that protects the neurons. Um, Have you seen but, an increase in uh, MS with people who take a lot of antibiotics? Because we know that antibiotics can penetrate the blood-to-brain barrier. That's why antibiotics were given with a steroid for COVID-19. So could people who have been more on antibiotics been more, caught that idea make them more susceptible to getting something like MS? I haven't seen or heard that. Now, I have to admit, I'm not a, a medicine specialist. Yeah. You know, I, I'm Fair enough. psychiatry. Um, but these things seem to be, you know, autoimmune disorders like okay. MS or, you know, other examples, things like lupus or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't, I've never heard that they're caused by antibiotics. Not to say may caused. It's, it's interesting how MS is an issue with that blood to brain barrier and white matter and how things that aren't supposed to be there can get in there. And we do know that antibiotics can take some things that aren't supposed to be there and put them in there. So I'm not saying antibiotics is uh, terrible. Antibiotics are great. I love them there. They've helped our, our society a hundredfold. Um, but it, I just an interesting correlation. I just thought of. So, yeah. One thing that's interesting is a lot of the problems in attention and memory and uh, problem solving and thinking that people with schizophrenia have are also found in people with MS and also in people with type 2 diabetes. And this is the thing. Once you have a a process kicked off that's bad for your brain, then you're losing abilities. And so then you compare these groups that have very different causes, most likely, of their problem but yet some of the the effects that you see are, are similar so inflammation uh, you touched on a second ago is pretty key both in ms and uh, schizophrenia because of cortisol cortisol chronically is really bad for our body that's why people who are always stressed like i was 
consistently stressed in the EMS field, right? Uh, I spent almost seven years there and every every day in that life was extremely stressful. Um, I mean, I was getting gray hair, I was getting wrinkles, all the things that happen because of uh, long-term stress, right? Um, What we do know is that long-term stress does affect the hippocampus. It actually shrinks it. Um, And people with schizophrenia have a a smaller hippocampus, like you talked about earlier. And that's an interesting uh, facet with cortisol. So in your opinion, how much of stress and cortisol has affected a lot of this research, a lot of possible possible diagnoses, as well as the visual aspect? Does stress affect the visual aspect in a way that is breaking up that link that you're that you're talking about? Yeah, well, we are going all over the place here. There's I know, so I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. There's so many interesting things to talk about. Um, so first, I want to say that there's, um, yeah, there's definitely a link between stress and the hippocampus and schizophrenia. There's a uh, number of researchers who spent many, many years on this, including Elaine Walker down at Emory University, hmm. talking about the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands and how they're related in a, in a system. So normally when you're under stress, you kind of feel really agitated or hyper aroused. And then when the stress goes away, you feel back to normal. But that system get dysregulated so that you, in a way, your body's responding as if you're always under stress and the system stops being sensitive and it kind of takes on its own internal way of doing things separated from what's happening out in the world. And you're right, that can lead, when it's overactive chronically, it can lead to death in the hippocampal cells. Now, the hippocampus is important not only for remembering things like, well, you know, where did I go last summer on vacation? But if you think about it, um, when you walk around in the world and function, that's because you're seeing and hearing stuff now and you can understand what's happening because you link it up with some stored memories that your hippocampus has been involved in storing them. But when that, you start losing tissue in the hippocampus, um, It's as if, in a way, it eats away at your sense of identity and your ability to kind of have a sense, even that it was you who did some of the things that you can remember, or of encoding things that you're doing now is that you're the one doing them, not like someone, you saw somebody else do it. It's a little bit hard to explain, but losing- Is that kind of like an out-of-body experience? A lot of people talk about those out-of-body experiences, or they don't feel like they're part of themselves. It's not exactly that, but it's the same kind of, it's a similar idea, but it's not exactly an out of, because it's not necessarily that you are having an out of body experience. Let me give you an example. Let's say, and this is an actual experiment done in France by a very interesting research group there. Let's say uh, you and me go into a room and there's a box with all kinds of stuff in it. And I say, okay, I'm going to, uh, take out an index card and it's going to have two things on it. And you go pick those out of the box and put them on the table. Then I'm going to do the same thing. So you're going to have at the end of the 20 minutes, you're going to have put a bunch of pairs of objects on a table and you will have watched me do the same thing. Now, um, if I asked you afterwards and said, okay, remember the thing, it was like the combination of the cottage cheese and the uh, tomato. 
So was that something that was put on the table? Let's say it was. So then you say yes. And then the next question is, well, who put it there, you or me? Now you would think that's so easy. Of course you're gonna remember if it was you or me, right? But in people with schizophrenia, they're, let's say, just as good at remembering which combo of things was on the table, but not so good at remembering who put it there, them or the other person. Because there's a disruption in a way of like linking your internal sense of self with the event that happens. So you, in a way, over time, it's like you become less emotionally connected almost to the your past experiences, which is kind of what defines who you are. Huh. It's, it's hard to explain it in a way, but the point is losing tissue in your hippocampus is bad. <laughs> <laughs> not a good thing. It has all kinds of effect. It's not just like you can't remember where you went on vacation because so much of your own identity is based in feeling like you're the one who did something. When you remember things, you remember, remembering things helps you rem- have a sense of continuity and a sense of who you are. Huh. You, you are your memories. And that's what, yeah. you know, when you get Alzheimer's disease, it's like the person disappears. Huh. They don't have a sense of who they are. Yeah. So, but I did want to add, um, so yeah, so chronic stress, affects hippocampus uh, and and you do see it in schizophrenia and child abuse in people who are under chronic stress. Yeah. Now, many people who, who develop schizophrenia have had histories of some pretty bad trauma. Yeah. But even if you haven't, just having the psychotic symptoms themselves can be traumatic, hmm. right? I mean, if you're hearing a voice every day, 50 times a day to go kill yourself and telling you that you're like the world's worst person and you're the cause of HIV and that's happening constantly every day. I mean, that's very, very stressful. You can't underestimate that. Hmm. And this is why the suicide rate in schizophrenia is just as high as in depression. Most people don't realize that. Oh, wow. Um, But I did want to add that that system, that hypothalamus and pituitary and adrenal gland, the stress system is one of several kind of like, uh, system issues involved in schizophrenia. It's not the only one. Yeah. So for example, there they found um, if you, if a woman is pregnant and in the second trimester, the set months four, five, and six of her pregnancy, she's got the flu. Then that mother is more likely to have a child who 20 years later will have schizophrenia than another mother who maybe had the flu in the eighth month or who maybe never had the flu. Why the flu? Yeah, that's a good question. It seems to be, it's not limited to the flu, but some of the initial studies were of that because you have a flu pandemic and then you can study like hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, But even like uh, in Australia, they did a study where they had this really big earthquake that affected a lot of people, you know, their homes were destroyed and all this stuff. And mothers who were in the second three months of pregnancy during the earthquake also had an increased risk of kids having schizophrenia years later, as were women who in the second three months were like, let's say, in a famine condition. So it seems to be when the brain is, something's happening in the fourth, fifth, and sixth months of brain development, that if it gets interrupted, either by a stress of the mother having a virus, 
or not sufficient nutrition or just the mother's totally stressed, it will throw off the, I don't know what you want to call it, like the neuroimmune system of the developing fetus in a way then that makes that person more likely to have these disruptions that lead to schizophrenia 20 years later. That's crazy. And in a way, going back to the blindness thing, it's like the changes that are happening in someone who's born blind to certain other parts of their brain are in a way they're protective. Whereas, you know, being having a, your mother have the flu or be under tremendous stress in that middle part of pregnancy is making someone way more likely to develop schizophrenia later. That's really interesting. Has there been much research on this topic with COVID-19? I'm going to tell you a little story. I, you know, I, so I had COVID-19, right? Um, I'm a really healthy guy. I try and keep, I've told listeners, no, I've had COVID, whatever, but I was paranoid. Like I was straight up afterwards. I got acute anxiety. I, 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 at nighttime, I thought I I heard people walking in the house. I got um, an alarm system because I was so paranoid directly after COVID-19, after I recovered from COVID-19. And I was like, this is insane. So I started with more research on it and Sure enough, it was like 30% of the people who have had COVID-19 and developed um, like loss of sense of smell, uh, those symptoms post-COVID-19 were things like I had depression, anxiety, uh, all, all paranoia. Um, it was very interesting. Do you know much about paranoia and some of those things and how it relates to COVID-19? Yeah, well, what I'll say is uh, you're not alone in having that experience. Um, It's people, more and more reports every day are coming out about this. So So it looks like there's some connection. We're still trying to learn what actually is going on. Yeah. So, you know, COVID is kind of defined as like the SARS virus. It's a respiratory disorder. Mm-hmm. But we're realizing now it's kind of like the Spanish flu was 100 years ago. It's not just respiratory. It affects, it gets in the brain in many people. Mm-hmm. And, it, and not only can it affect the brain in the short term, it can affect it in the long term. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago, in the years after that, a lot of people developed some pretty strange symptoms. So clearly it seems now it can get in the brain, at least coming in through the nose, right? Because there's a direct connection there, but maybe through the eye and maybe other ways as well. And definitely there's increased rates of depression and anxiety in people with COVID. It's thought that for some of those people, it's like, okay, the depression is not really from the disease. It's more like because they lost their job and now they're depressed because they're not working, they're not making money, but that in many people, it is a direct effect of the disease on the brain. Yeah. Um, People, it's been reported that people can be paranoid. They can have visions, you know, visual hallucinations. And I think we're just beginning to see all the effects that it can have in the brain. Um, And the thinking is that we may not even see some effects for years till years from now. Some of these might be slow developing long after effects. So, uh, but on the uh, positive side, people based on the experience of a hundred years ago are ahead of it in a sense of starting to 
collect information from people and starting to study it. And so there's going to be a lot more known even in a year from now. Yeah, the only thing that really helped me, which is super weird. I wasn't really expecting this because um, it was daily. I was having a, a straight up anxiety attacks where, I mean, I felt like the entire world was closing on me. Nighttime was worse because of the uh, paranoia. The only thing that helped me was if when I started eating a very strict, healthy diet, I took probiotics and then I stopped drinking like beer. Um, and apparently from my uh, nutritionist uh, sister who I had on the show a while back, she said, yeah, it's a gut biome issue. She goes, "You're a lot of times the yeast in your uh, gut biome can be really affected by COVID as well as uh, uh, like the antibiotics that you take. So she says, you're just off. Just, just take some, like stop, take out beer. Don't have as much yeast and sugar and let your body heal. And as soon as I started doing that, it actually helped. Like I haven't had an anxiety attack or paranoia in, in weeks and months. So super, yeah. super interesting. That's incredible. You know, um, yeah, the gut microbiome, there, there are amazing connections between the gut and the brain. Yeah. I was hoping you'd get into this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a real expert in this area, but um, I, I kind of read these things in, in awe that with examples like you just mentioned, where you can affect somebody's mental health by changing the composition or balance of bacteria in their digestive system. Mm -hmm. um, now, in your case, it had a really drastic effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, oftentimes these effects are like partial. They're good effects, but they're not 100% effect. But, uh, you know, in a way, I'm not surprised that that happened and I'm glad it happened. And you're very lucky that you have a nutritionist in your family. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's amazing what we're learning now um, the, there's essentially neurons and some of this in the gut and neurotransmitters that are found in the brain. And many of them are found in the digestive system as well. So I think we're a lot more complicated than I think we traditionally have thought we were. And everything's connected. I, I think we have a medical system that is very cordon off, like they section off these different areas of health. Um, right. But we need them to communicate you know everything affects everything else so i completely get the specialties of medicine uh, the gi doc the the heart doc all, the surgery doc it's i get it but yeah. right now there's a disconnect between every system and and there's it's almost like the doctors and specialties that are uh treating these different body parts aren't talking to each other and so just because you give uh, imagine ssri or antibiotic um, it could really affect something that's not a part of your scope, you know? Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, and there's been trends in Western medicine over the last 25 years, maybe uh, increasing to integrate areas of medicine. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because on the one hand, if you need eye surgery, like a cataract removal, you don't want to have a foot surgeon do that, <laughs> right? On the other hand, you know, a lot of diseases are very complicated. And the truth is, a lot of people who show up to medical clinics have multiple symptoms and often you can't find the cause of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And often there are people who smoke, they drink too much, they don't get enough exercise, they're depressed, they're under a lot of stress. Um, and, you know, people who are specialists in, you know, internal medicine don't really get the training in like psychosomatics or how mm -hmm. stress affects the system and then leads to more symptoms. Why do family practice doctors prescribe mental health medicines? I'm really curious about that. Well, 
you know, the, a, a lot of family and marriage docs get a lot of training in psychiatry. And yeah, they this is a few months though. It's not like you. So you have a full on uh, doctorate in this field. Wouldn't that? So I'm a family practice or general practitioner prescribing something like you know lithium or an SSRI or something like that. Um, wouldn't that be the equivalent of like a heart uh, family practice trying to do heart surgery because that's not their field? Well, in a way, yes. But the truth is most antidepressants are prescribed by primary care doctors way more than uh, by psychiatrists. I know that's my issue. <laughs> right now. So, so yeah, I just want to establish that is in fact, what is pretty typical, but should it be um, in a sense? No, but on the other hand, there aren't enough psychiatrists to go around and especially I mean, if you live in Manhattan, there's no shortage of psychiatrists. If you live in, you know, uh, Wyoming, the, for example, there, it's just not enough people out there. Mm, in New Mexico, there, in certain states, and that's why they've actually started letting psychologists who take certain courses in pharmacology prescribe medication there because they need more people to prescribe. Mm. Um, uh, no, it is the case that a lot of family medicine people do actually have a decent amount of experience in psychiatry, but certainly no one should be prescribing anything unless they have some good experience with it. I was just doing a research uh, topic a while back on one of my papers in public health, and that was a big issue that the uh, American Academy of Psychology presented and how a lot of our cases right now are being treated as best they can with doctors who are prescribing these SSRIs, which again, at some points it's it's really beneficial, but we're also seeing that SSRIs aren't always the best uh, way to move forward in things like uh, mental health or depression. It's, it's a good way. It is a good way, but sometimes it's not always the best way. And that's just my opinion. But I mean, again, I'm, you're the expert. <laughs> well, no, I agree. I think they help a lot of people, no doubt about it. Um, and many people can take them for years without having you know, any significant side effects. Um, there are other, you know, treat for people with like mild or moderate to mild depression, mm -hmm. um, which can still be significant, but I'm talking about people who aren't actively suicidal and they can still show up to work most of the time and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, you know, there are By the way, that's, a, that's a big deal. Like what you just mentioned, you kind of glanced over that, but that's actually a huge deal. The, the the moderate to mild to severe depression, that, that's kind of a cutoff line for some different treatments. Am I right? Right. Now, one reason, very practical reason for that is if you have someone who's suicidal, let's say you put them on an SSRI, you know, those can take a month, four, five, six weeks to have their full effect. It's not like an aspirin that'll work in you know, an hour. So, you don't want to take a chance that, you know, in the next month, the person might go and commit suicide because they don't feel any better yet. Mm. Um, that's why often people go into the hospital. Yeah. Um, but for someone who's not in the hospital and who's not actively suicidal, you know, SSRIs can certainly be good, but things like cognitive behavior therapy are also good. Mm. And in fact, often work just as well and even have better long-term effects. Mm -hmm. Right. So after the person's not taking meds or in the therapy, the people who had the therapy, because they've learned mental strategies, they can be doing better. Mm -hmm. But it is harder to work up front. And a lot of people show up at their primary care doc and they say, look, I'm depressed. My friend 
Zion, you know, Prozac. Yeah. I want Prozac. And either you give them Prozac or you lose a customer, essentially. Hmm. And so it's a tough position to, to be in. Big picture, do you think that's the like something that we could get better at, or is that an okay strategy for now where uh, the people just want the patients just want to come in for that pill? They just want to come in for that quick fix, uh, give it to me. And also, the doctors have the incentive for that same exact thing. You know, the incentive based medicine has some good things, but it's also has a lot of pitfalls. Yeah, well, I think. You, if you did a hundred podcast interviews, you might get, you know, <laughs> a lot of different opinions, but I guess what I would say from my experience is if somebody was getting depressed, I think I would recommend that they go into some you know, short term, two, three month uh, cognitive behavior therapy, something that's been shown to be very effective that teaches people to kind of catch themselves having thoughts that are a little exaggerated or overly negative, mm-hmm. keep track of them, recognize when they have them, learn to kind of think of things in different ways. And um, these strategies are very helpful. If they didn't want that and they're insisting on the medication and I felt they had enough symptoms of depression, you know, then, okay, that they can get the medication and I would still be recommending over the, that they at some point go into therapy, maybe when they feel a little bit better, because this can be preventive from having another depressive episode. Yeah. The problem is a lot of people don't want to ever do that work. Mm. And, you know, how to deal with that, you're asking like the, you know, the billion dollar question. Certainly you want to reduce the stigma of having these problems. Mm. You maybe even teach about them in school when kids are young you know, here's something that happens and, you know, here's what you can do and whatever. Um, But ultimately it seems like a lot of people don't want to follow good advice and hope I'm not sounding like a too uh, severe here or whatever. But, you know, if you think about it, we pretty much know smoking's bad, you know, eating tons of sugar is bad, you know, um, but it tastes good. <laughs> yes. People do things about what feels good yeah. now. Yep. It's hard to invest in things for the future. Yeah. So how um, how and, do we? Like, is there any solution to that in your opinion? Well, I think there's been amazing strides made with uh, cigarette smoking. I mean, the rate of it is much less than it used to be. And I think people are aware of the um, the problems with it. Well, it's because uh, it's not a uh, it's not uh, promoted by the government anymore as a means for medicine. <laughs> yeah. No, there are big big problems. I mean, public health campaigns are good, but there's not enough money into those things. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the amount of marketing that goes into certain products that you see commercial TV every day, or like how much money is spent on beer commercials just during the Super Bowl. Forget about the rest of the year. And then how much is spent on public health to say, you know, you know, if you have a drink once in a while, no problem. If you have a six pack every day, you know, you're going to have all kinds of uh, changes in your body that could kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, real quick. Um, when do you have to leave? I would say I, I got it by another 15. 15 minutes. If you have to stop, we can stop now. I could probably go another 15, 20, about 2.30, my okay. time. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so next few minutes here, I am curious. You, you in the email, you mentioned uh, if if schizophrenia is the only topic you could talk about. <laughs> Was there anything else that you just like love, like passion wise? You mentioned earlier about uh, consciousness, about uh, LSD, that that type of stuff. Is there anything in that arena or that you want to touch on that I would find interesting? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, let me say this. I think there's some exciting trends happening in, in uh, mental health treatment nowadays. One of them, to go back to something you mentioned before, is using psychedelic drugs in combination with um, psychological counseling. Okay. To, and the data on this, it's really amazing what's happening. We're talking about like microdosing with shrooms? Yes. Okay. Um, so when this first started, you know, I mean, years ago, people were researching this in the sixties and seventies, then there were just too many people who got took two, two high doses on their own with no guidance yeah. and they shouldn't have taken it anyway. Cause they didn't have the right. That was a party, what that was. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it got kind of a really bad reputation yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Then it started coming back. Because if it's done right and if it's done carefully, it can have a different effect. Mm -hmm. So the first studies that were coming out were in people dying of cancer. Huh. And they were definitely going to die. There was no way to prevent it. The problem was these people who at the end of their life were extremely depressed, anxious, and agitated. And as you might imagine, many people are going to be. And they found that having two sessions that lasted for hours, you know, so they're in a room with like one or two therapists who are experienced kind of guiding people through an LSD experience or a psilocybin experience. Mm -hmm. um, but these experiences were so powerful in terms of making people feel like they were having religious or spiritual experiences. And they were kind of part of a larger universe that their anxiety and depression went way down. And so they went through the process of dying in a much more peaceful way. Hmm. So those are some of the earlier studies and these are still happening now, but those started a while ago. And then people started saying, well, if that's happening, what if we just take people who have really bad PTSD or really bad depression or even really bad drug abuse? You know, they could be 30 years old. They're not dying of cancer or whatever. And the results are really, really good there too. So again, you don't just give the person LSD and say, take this every day. Yeah. You have a few sessions with them and you kind of say, here's what's going to happen when you take LSD, you know, and you're going to have two sessions where you actually come in, take LSD, have like a blindfold on and experience things that's going to last several hours. And we'll be here with you walking you through it. Um, and usually two of those sessions and then maybe another one or two follow up discussions. And the results are amazing. I mean, they're better than, for the most part, SSRIs or any of these other medications. Interesting. Um, it's as if they're, they're disconnecting faulty brain networks that have formed that lead these symptoms to persist, huh. right? Whereas something like SSRIs, if ever, or therapy could take years to, to loosen up some of these uh, faulty brain networks. So I think this is a major trend in the future. It's something I'm excited about. And I'm working with some people here in Rochester, the medical center Ooh. who are interested in this. Um, but there's, uh, there are many people doing this, the, the kind of the epicenter of this work is at Johns Hopkins. They have a whole center for like consciousness studies. <laughs> um, but if you look on their website, Roland Griffiths and other people there, it's amazing what, what they're doing. Huh. Um, 
And even things like ketamine, which it used yeah. to be like, you know, you don't go near that unless you want to get drug okay. out. But now there's nasal, you know, like Flonase. You're taking ketamine from a nasal inhaler. Yeah. And it's a very powerful antidepressant. Yeah, there's a there's a, a drug. It's not actually ketamine. It's a like a sister of, of ketamine. I don't even know what it's called, but they're using it as a, 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 a replacement for a lot of the SSRIs. And it's well, it, the yeah, it's called S ketamine. It's often spelled E S ketamine, but okay. the chemically, it's like S dash ketamine because a lot of chemicals have like two forms, like a rightward pointing and a leftward pointing, and the S is the leftward pointing, and so it's just like one, um, huh. one form of it. And by the way, I'm not suggesting to anyone listening to this to go find some ketamine <laughs> and shoot it up your nose because these, idea. these are very carefully prepared yeah. uh, solutions by people who know what they're doing. It's also like we use ketamine to intubate people. So it it, it knocks you out completely. So just be careful. Don't just go take it. <laughs> right. I mean, there's different levels of consciousness from, yes. you know, uh, right. So that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> these have been very carefully studied before it was allowed on the market. But I do think that these drugs, um, which have the potential for abuse, uh, for sure, always uh, can be very can cause very powerful and sometimes very rapid change, even in people like who've been depressed or you know whatever the symptom that they've had for a very long time, and nothing else has worked. Huh. So I think this is a very uh, exciting and interesting, you know, uh, future or current yeah. trend in psychiatry. In, in the most simple version that you can give, how does something like psilocybin, uh, shrooming, microdosing on shrooms, basically, how does it work to, to affect uh, things like depression and anxiety or even schizophrenia? Yeah. So that's another thing where we're still trying to figure that out. There's a lot of work happening now. Okay. Uh, but I would say there's two things that seem to happen. I would say most anybody would agree on. One is that there are these kind of networks in the brain between neurons, nerve cells that have been formed that are what's keeping the symptoms going. Right. So like, let's say you're, you always have a negative reaction to anything new. Even if someone compliments you, you find a way to hmm. turn it into, they actually think you're a fool, but they only said that because, you know, to <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, so very negative patterns, very negative maladaptive ways of thinking that keep people locked in. You know, they're afraid of everything. So like everything could cause anxiety. Huh. Uh, every doorknob can be have a, a fatal germs on it, whatever. Again, not different than ideas that any of us have ever had, but they become so extreme and so uh, they they kind of take over like the most important things that you build your life around. So, and it's very hard to to break up those brain networks. And it does seem that the psychedelic substances. Uh, do seem to be able to break them up. Huh. Almost like uh, Drano for your, your yeah. brain. It, it can unclog or un, it loosen the connection between uh, neurons that are leading these symptoms to persist. So on the one hand, they can kind of loosen up connections that you want to be looser. But what they also do is they allow connections to happen in the brain that normally would never happen. Huh. Right? 
Wow, that's interesting. It's almost like, you know, I grew up in the Bronx. So it's like, you know, the people on your block and you know, the people in your apartment building. We don't really know that many people in the building two blocks away. <laughs> um, so what something like LSD or ketamine does at the right dose is it's now it's allowing connections to happen between parts of the brain that are um, normally not in connection with each other. Now, in the short term, like an hour after you take it, you can be having the result of that is you're having all these mystical experiences like, wow, I feel so connected to the therapist, like we're the same person <laughs> or I'm part of the pattern in the rug or, you know, we're all yeah. I feel totally connected to the universe. And it's this incredibly emotionally lifting experience. But in the long run, it's like you're preparing your brain to learn new things. And that's what cognitive behavior therapy does, too. It just takes a lot longer because you're you're disconnecting some of the faulty networks and you're allowing new networks to form. So if the person is now taking new chances in life, maybe they'll finally ask for that raise or ask the person on a date, then their life starts to change. That's insane. So earlier you talked about neuroplasticity. So whenever we have a bad behavior or we have a bad um, experience with mental health, like you said earlier about something triggers you that gives you depression or something triggers you for anxiety or cause you to act a certain way in a negative way. Um, from what we know, many of those things occur from, can occur um, from a bad event, a traumatic event that is causing and triggering you over and over and over. And that has created a neural network for almost like a stream to always go down. If you have a river and you have all these different outlets and creeks, that new outlet and creek is your anxiety. That new outlet and creek is your bad behavior. Um, and it's set in for a while. It's kind of set. You have a new neural network that's rigid. That's, right. that's exactly right. Okay. Yes. So, so what, the drugs do what uh, microdosing on LSD, psilocybin, or uh, ketamine is it helps create more plasticity, making those creeks movable or maybe even stopping those creeks and the water can flow in new paths. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I just wanted to add one thing. Um, some of the treatments are with, as you're saying, microdosing. They're, they're very low doses. Um, but in some of these experiences, like with the cancer patients, mm-hmm. where it's like two sessions of actually with the drug and then a few other counseling before and after, <laughs> that's not microdosing. Okay. That's actually a, a much higher dose. Okay. Like guaranteed to create the uh, psychedelic effects, the, the hallucinations and the... Um, vivid colors and you know all that yeah now it might not be as much as some people took like at woodstock you know <laughs> but it's definitely not microdosing. okay that's fair enough so there, that's I just, a difference i just know microdosing has been a trend it's been a trend i've never done it but the trend is that you take a little bit of shrooms and you don't get the full side effects but you get a lot of the benefits and that's right safe. The idea with microdosing is you take a little bit like every three days or something like that, maybe for a few weeks. So you're you're kind of slowly rerouting the, the creek. The that's, creek. Okay, that's Whereas really with cool. the bigger dose, when you only have two sessions, it's more like you're coming in with the bulldozers and everything <laughs> else and you're changing it today. You create a whole new river. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. So what's the half-life on something like that? 
Oh, wow. I actually don't know the half-life. I mean, the sessions with LSD will last a few hours and usually people will go home afterwards. So you might have like, you know, let's say an hour later, you're starting to get some psychedelic effects. It might last for a few hours. Usually by four or five hours later, you're not having them anymore. Six hours later, you can go home later in the day. But I don't know actually what the half-life is. But what's cool about that is though the session is only five or six hours and you're feeling those, during that five or six hours, you've essentially created a new neural network for your body to grow in. That's, that's right. That's the idea. That's awesome. Now, you know, interestingly, everyone's trying to have electroshock therapy and nobody wants to ever have it. Although for really suicidal people, it's the fastest way to get someone to not be suicidal. I mean, that's really? what the data show. Yes. Um, and of I course, modern still going. Yeah. Well, it's different now than it used to be, you know, the much less electricity, usually it's only on one side of the brain. So it's not like causing as much memory loss, but ECT or electroconvulsive therapy was one of these things where people knew it worked, but no one really understood why it worked. But it seems like in a way it's working the same way as LSD, but without causing all the euphoria and the spiritual experiences, it's putting electricity in the brain. And of course, neurons talk to each other through electrical or chemical signals, but they're affecting the electrical activity in the neurons. And so you're disrupting that. So you're, you're, putting electricity in someone's brain to disrupt their neural connections. That is, wow. Um, That remains to be seen whether, you know, what works better for depression, serious depression, you know, LSD or psilocybin versus something like ECT. Um, uh, We haven't done those studies yet, but those will be coming. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see that. I know you got to dip out of here, so we'll go and wrap up. Um, Final words, final thoughts on everything we talked about. Anything you want to just throw out there? Um, well, first I want to thank you for inviting me to do this and giving me the chance to blab on for an hour and a half. Oh, I love it. I love having these um, type of conversations, man. Yeah. And you know, I, I really enjoyed it and I think it's, uh, it, I'm glad you're interested and I think it's, it's really good in a way that, um, discussions of mental health and the brain and stuff like that are kind of out there for like people to listen to. Yeah. You know, it's not like you have to you know, high to try to get information about this kind of stuff like it used to be. Yeah. Well, I'm really hoping to kind of, um, you talked about earlier, the stigma kind of breaks some of that stigma on a lot of what we understand about mental health and talking to professionals like you really helps do that. So, man, I really appreciate you. You're super smart. I'm looking forward to more of your research that comes out. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep in touch. Um, I hope, first of all, your power or everyone's power in Texas comes back. But yeah, I mean, anytime you want to talk again, uh, be happy to to do it. Oh, I'm sure I'll be reaching out in the next few months. (laughs) Yeah. All right, doctor. I really appreciate you. Appreciate you. Have a good day. All right. You too. All right. Bye. Bye bye.